99 times out of 100, adult creativity arises out of the scar tissue of childhood sorrow and anger. If you were physically abused, then likely you will be quite aggressive. If you were emotionally neglected, then you will arise to adulthood with a desperate desire to please and a significant capacity to manipulate an audience. Why? Because you've been performing emotional CPR on an absent, depressed, or neglectful mother, usually, for most of your childhood. These muscles don't appear out of nowhere. Like my muscles for rationality and empiricism largely were forged in a desperate fight with my mentally ill mother to retain my own sanity and oppose her literal insanity. These don't arise out of nothing. And the superhuman feats that certain minds are capable of arise out of <clears throat> a really desperate kind of cliff-edge battle that often goes on for years, if not decades, which strengthens muscles, sharpens responses, and so on. And I couldn't help but think of that. You know, I've, I've known quite a few artists and had their origin stories told to me directly, and it did not escape my attention that on Friday's real-time show on HBO, Bill Maher and actor Jim Carrey celebrated, of course, all of the recent Democratic candidates that were running on the far-left platforms. And these Democratic candidates identified themselves as socialists. And Carrey then said, we have to say yes to socialism, to the word and everything. We have to stop apologizing. And he got, of course, cheers. Now, that, of course, is your first clue. When a man so desperate for attention that he creates funny faces in front of a camera for about 20 years, tells you something and there's a big cheer, the question is, has he come up with some sort of objective definition of socialism? Has he studied the history? Does he understand the politics? Does he know the amount of force that is required to both control and maintain control over the means of production? No, of course not. He has the instincts to figure out what is going to be popular with the audience and then say it in a way that is guaranteed to get warm-hearted laughs. He has a desperate desire, as a lot of comedians do. He has a desperate desire to be liked, which is not insecurity. It's not pathological. It is simply because, as we'll find out about his mother, he was ignored, right? This happened a lot to Robin Williams as well. He was ignored over the course of his childhood. And his only survival strategy was to try and rouse his mother's attention, to attempt to forge a bond through comedic antics, to give some sort of positive reaction to himself from his mother through being entertaining. And that's where the manic energy comes from. And that's where the dysfunction comes from, in my humble opinion. Again, there are exceptions, but this has been my general experience. So Jim Carrey said, I grew up in Canada, okay? We have socialized medicine, and I'm here to tell you that this bullshit line that you get on all of the political shows from people is that it's a failure. The system is a failure in Canada. It's not a failure. And I never waited for anything in my life. I chose my own doctors. My mother never paid for a prescription. It was fantastic. All right. So that is something that's well worth unpacking. I never waited for anything in my life. Who knows if that's true or not? That is certainly not the experience of people who faced socialized medicine in other countries. Certainly in England, I get constant complaints. And you can read the articles on the National Health Service, how terrible it is, how delayed it is, how, many, um, how much you have to wait for things. Certainly here in Canada, the waiting lists are enormous uh, because... Um, 
That's what happens. I mean, when you socialize something, there's no longer any market forces, and therefore the only way to restrict its costs is to slow down the provision of services. So when he says, I've never waited for anything in my life, I don't even know what that means. Now, the guy is, what, 56 or so, and he was last in Canada 40 years ago, 30 years ago, I don't know. But things have certainly changed since then. See, this is a thing that happens when you socialize something. When you take over, I think it was in the 1960s, this happened in Canada uh, under Tommy Douglas, but when you take something from the free market and then you place it in the protective mode of state power, there's a certain amount of momentum, right? Like, you know, if you have, as a kid, you fire those freaks and geeks style rockets uh, straight up and they go up for a while and they will continue to go up even after their energy source is depleted and then they begin to sort of slow and fall back to earth. So when you socialize something, you get the existing configuration that has been adapted to a free market. It's efficient. It's full of entrepreneurial people. They have a great commitment to their patients. And they're not just, that doesn't just switch off. Socialization is like a drug. It gets you the best of both worlds for a short amount of time, like a couple of decades maximum. So if you socialize a doctor, you take him out of the free market, and he went into medicine because it was free market, because he wanted to take care of uh, his uh, his patients, because, and this is when you get the house calls, doctors working 18 hours a day, male doctors. But when you socialize that, you don't just erase that work ethic. You don't just erase that commitment to, to, to patients and so on. It takes a long time for that to change over. But when it does change over, things become catastrophic. So when you first socialize something, it's like, wow, these doctors are energetic, they're focused, they're customer focused, and the entire system is configured around free market needs. And it takes a while for that to go out of focus, you understand, right? It takes a while for that to change. You get a different kind of doctor coming into the system when you've socialized it than when it was free market. When it was free market, hardworking doctors willing to go the extra mile, be there for their patients, uh, fight like hard against bureaucracy to get their patients what they need because that's how they get paid. When you socialize it, it changes in that the people who then want to go into the socialized medicine well, they're more focused on making a buck. They're more focused on churning patients through, like the average doctor uh, takes, like, what, listens to your complaints for, like, 18 seconds or so before recommending something. They're always in a hurry. They're always trying to rush you along. And uh, here in Canada, <clears throat> when, like, there's a certain billing cap for doctors in some places, and when they meet that billing cap, if it's before the end of their financial year, they just take that last month off or so because they don't want to work for nothing, right? So you just get a different kind of person. Think of... The early days of uh, the space program in America, when they were able to send a guy to the moon, they got a guy in orbit, they put dogs and, and chimpanzees and so on in orbit. And what's happened lately? Well, it's gone out of focus. So you initially got people, engineers from the, from the, uh, <clears throat> from the private sector, from the free market, they did a fantastic job. Then it just, it just goes out of focus. And by the time it's gone out of focus, and it is no longer responsive, it is no longer, it doesn't anymore have the free market configurations that it had, the free market, hardworking, dedicated people in it, well, then it's usually too late <clears throat> to change. It is not a failure, and I never waited for anything in my life. I've had a wait list once of 14 months. <clears throat> 14 months to see a doctor. <clears throat> 14 months. Come on. 14 months, you're either better or you're dead. And as everyone knows, <clears throat> I had to flee Canada to go to the States for uh, life-saving healthcare. I chose my own doctors. Now, here's the fascinating part. 
My mother never paid for a prescription. It was fantastic. My mother never paid for a prescription. Now, I don't know where Jim Carrey grew up. I think it was Ontario. But I certainly have to pay for prescriptions, so I don't really know <laughs> what he means. If you want to get an, in, in Canada, if you want to get an MRI for a dog, next day. You want to get an MRI for yourself, months of waiting. So my mother never paid for a prescription. Bookmark, that's very, very important. Jim Carrey went on to say, and I just got back from Vancouver, and I keep hearing this, Canadians are so nice, Canadians are so nice, they can be nice because they have health care, because they have a government that cares about them, that doesn't say, sink or effing swim, pal, or you live in a box. There are certain people in our society that need to be taken care of, he said. There are people without as many opportunities that need to be helped toward those opportunities. There are people who are sick. You shouldn't have to lose your home because your mother got sick. And, of course, everyone cheered, and, and uh, it's a wonderful vision. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful vision that you get this all-caring government that just provides this wonderful health care to everyone so nobody has to worry about medical bills. That is a wonderful vision. It's not true. It's not moral. It's not empirically factual. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful vision. So... They can be nice because they have health care, because they have a government that cares about them. Well, I'm not sure that the government really cares about Canadians as a whole. So, for instance, the majority of Canadians want significantly reduced immigration rates. But nonetheless, the third world keeps pouring into Canada because that helps buy, buy votes for the Liberals. So I'm not sure that the fundamental demographic change in Canada, where whites are going to become a minority uh, in half a century or so, that's not really... <laughs> what the majority wants, but the government doesn't, doesn't care. Now, when he says, my mother never paid for a prescription, well, who did then? It's almost the question, right? It's free. No, no, no. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Repeat after me. There's no such thing as a free lunch. It's not free. So who pays for it? That is the fundamental question. Now, in Canada, it's paid for by the next generation who are never going to receive the quality of care that existing Canadians get from their healthcare system, right? You understand. Canada, like all democracies, plunges ever more heavily into debt. So per capita debt just here in Ontario is five times the per capita debt of left coast basket case California in America. So it's paid for by debt. Now, when things are paid for by debt, debt is just deferred savings, right? I mean, you, you have to save money to pay off your debt. Like if you borrow $20,000 now and it's due next year, next year you can spend $20,000 plus interest less, right? So it's just deferred savings that you never get to consume. So spending more in the here and now on healthcare, which is funded by debt and by inflation and by government bonds, which is a more formal kind of debt. When you buy a bond, you're just guaranteeing yourself or others a future tax increase. So... Sure. I mean, if, if you borrow to pay for something and you've got hardworking people from the free market and the configuration of healthcare is inherited from the free market, it looks great. Like cocaine looks great for a while and then it costs you badly, right? And so who, who pays for it? Well, in Canada, in general, it's the next generation that's going to pay for it with massive unfunded liabilities, with huge national debts uh, and with a decayed and decaying infrastructure on just about every level, including Healthcare. 
And it's another thing too, when you have a healthcare system and you have an immigration policy that generally brings people in from the third world and they're allowed to sponsor elderly parents and so on, then you are lightening down your existing healthcare system with people who've never paid into it who need a huge amount of resources. Is that what Canadians want? The Canadians who've actually paid for the healthcare system? Well, no, of course not, right? So there are certain people in our society that need to be taken care of. Now, this is one of the <clears throat> annoying things. It's very tough to argue with leftists because you spend 90% of your time just explaining basic things about how the world works. <laughs> so when they say, well, there are people who need to be taken care of, <clears throat> that is one of these captain obvious statements that is, frankly, mentally at least, entirely punchable. There are people who get sick. Really? I had no idea. There are people in our society that need to be taken care of. There are, with peop there are people without as many opportunities that need to be helped toward those opportunities. There are people who are sick. These statements that there are dysfunctional people, there are sad people, there are broken people, there are depressed people, there are anxious people, there are people who get ill through no fault of their own, that is an absolutely factual statement. And saying it is, <laughs> I don't know, it's like going to me, I want to be a keynote speaker at a physics conference. What is your topic? There's stuff and it moves. <laughs> I mean, this is like stuff that would not be entertained as a reasonable presentation in kindergarten should not be chest-thumpingly, virtue-signally orated on mainstream television. Or I guess maybe it should. Maybe that's what mainstream television is for. But um, yeah, there are people who are sick. There are people who need to be helped. Of course, everybody on the planet recognizes that. The question is, how are they helped in a sustainable and productive way? Because if, if there's a guy who's a drunk and you give him some alcohol, he's happy. You've helped him, but you've actually hurt him. If there's somebody who's poor, because that poor person is making bad decisions with their money, right? Maybe they're drinking too much alcohol. Maybe they're gambling. Who knows, right? Giving them more money will not solve their problems. It will, in fact, make those problems work worse. Helping people is a very complex thing. And the only people who just say, well, people need to be helped, therefore government force and debt and political power is the only way to do it, I think are people who've never actually tried to help someone in their own lives. Or maybe they've tried to help someone and it's completely failed, which we'll get to with Jim Carrey in a few minutes. But it's very, very difficult and complicated to help people. I mean, I have been talking to people about philosophy and all of that um, in, in my call-in shows for well over 10 years now. I've done thousands and thousands of these conversations it's really difficult and complicated to help people. And just saying, well, this massively complicated thing should just be done by a bunch of bureaucrats and politicians who have the power, the coercive power of taxation. I don't understand it fundamentally. I don't understand it. So it says here, you shouldn't have to lose your home because your mother got sick. Well, I don't know. What does it mean you shouldn't have to lose your home because your mother got sick? Did your mother take care of herself? Did your mother buy health care insurance? And I'm not talking about the garbage Obamacare crap that goes on in America. America is struggling with the vestigial tail. Like, you know, you, if a lizard loses its tail, it twitches around on the sidewalk for a bit. Well, that's the free market in healthcare in America. More than 50% of every healthcare dollar in America is spent by the government. You've got massive government programs. You've got restrictions to entry. You've got restrictions... You have to show a certificate of need to even open up a healthcare clinic in some places. It's crazy, crazy, mostly socialized, and that's why it's gotten so 
expensive. So if you get sick, it's a risk we all know about. And it's a risk, of course, that you buy insurance for. And if you haven't bought insurance, maybe, just maybe, you've been a wonderful enough person in your own community that people will help you out. Right? When I got sick, I asked for some money for the healthcare bills in America, and people did a lot to help me out, which I hugely appreciate. So if you're part of a church, if you're part of a community, if you're recognized as a great person, a warm person, a wonderful person, one of these soft knitting needles that holds together the entire tapestry of a community, people will band together. They Because you've helped them out They will, in this wonderful warm knitting of community that we used to have until... Uh, diversity in the welfare state, you will be taken care of. So the question is, why would you lose your home if you got sick? Well, if you got sick through a, a fault of your own, like you just chain smoked or whatever, well, people's sympathy will probably still be there, but there's a certain amount of, well, you know, if you juggle with chainsaws every now and then, you're going to get a pretty close shave on your fingernails. So if it was just something bad that happened, if it was, you know, if you just never quite got round to buying your healthcare insurance, assuming it's a reasonable price, which it would be in a free market. Then people would be like, yeah, we'll help, but man, you really should have bought that <laughs> uh, healthcare insurance, right? So why would you lose your home if you get sick? And the other thing too is in a socialized system, if the government doesn't want to give you healthcare, most people, they don't have the option to go to the States and pay. So you die. You die. And... I mean, I, when the government has control over your health care and they don't provide it to you, what can you do? There's no, there's no other place to go. You just sit there and you wait and you hope while the tumor grows. It's just terrible. But we'll get into this more a little bit late. And socialism is interesting. From each according to their ability to each according to their need. So... Everyone should get a leading role, right? All, all the actors should get a leading role. All the actors should get paid the same as the A-list. Celebrities, every unemployed actor gets paid. Even if they don't show up to the movie set, they get paid. So why, why wouldn't they embrace that? Well, of course they wouldn't. Because see, socialism for other people. It's for getting empty cheers from empty-headed people in a television studio, uh, in, in the sophistry Mount Doom of verbal massaging of people's self-suicide glands. And Jim Carrey as well, was born in Canada, grew up in Canada. Now, what's interesting, he's a very talented guy, don't get me wrong, very talented guy, very good comedian. You've got to see him contort his face into Clint Eastwood. And uh, he talks about when he was uh, younger uh, and he was uh, homeless. And he makes jokes about it, like um, it was something like, uh, hey, dad, is there any possibility that we're living below the poverty line? <laughs> no, son, we're rich as long as we have each other now. Into the dumpster you go, up you go. Yeah, it's kind of chilling stuff. He was homeless for a while, has made jokes about it, talked about it before. But you see, given his talents, there's more money to be made in America in film and television than in, in Canada. So where did this socialist go? Well, he abandoned Canada and its wonderful healthcare system where people are very nice. And he took all of his earning power and went to America, where he's now worth, what, 150 million? Like some crazy, I can't remember exactly, but some crazy number that he's worth, right? So if 
The healthcare system kept his mother alive, then why wouldn't he stay in Canada, where the healthcare system is so wonderful, use his talents to help generate tax revenue within Canada? People say, well, some of his films were filmed in Canada and so on, but that's because of tax breaks. <laughs> you understand? That's because of tax breaks, paying less tax. So yeah, he moved to the arch-capitalist home planet of Hollywood, and that's where he made his money. So now... He said his mother never paid for prescriptions. Also Jim Carrey, and I quote, My mom was addicted to pain medication. First of all, Jim, I'm really, really sorry. That is a horrible way to grow up when you've got a mom wandering around in a brain fog and you're desperately trying to connect with her because as a child, connection, and we're just going to go with the mother here in particular, but connection with your mother is survival itself. If the mother is indifferent to you, if the mother doesn't care, if the mother is distracted, especially if you have siblings, well, I mean, you've seen those little piglets, the run to the litter, trying to borrow their way in to get to the mom's, the mother pig's nipples and so on, right, to get the milk. I mean, you're going to die. Uh, that is, there is death anxiety around a lack of connection with your mother and you'll do anything to try and maintain that connection. You'll make funny faces. You'll make jokes. You'll even act out. You'll cause trouble. You'll, you'll, you'll anger your mother because at least that's some connection. Anything. Don't ignore me. Don't ignore me. Don't ignore me is the foundational chant of dysfunctional childhoods, particularly when neglect, which is a very underrated form. Uh, sorry, it's an under... I, know, I can't think of a good way to put this without it sounding like it's a good thing. It is underestimated often how bad parental neglect is for children. I think it's one of the worst outside of outright sexual abuse because we know that children will act negatively to get parental attention. And so it is one of the worst forms of child abuse is parental neglect. And it does produce this just kind of desperation to be liked. This, no, you don't have a self, right? You have to be you plus entertaining. You have to be you plus jokes. You have to be you plus funny faces. You have to be you whatever, right? And it hollows you out when you have to put on a performance for your mom all the time. It hollows you out. You don't have a relationship. You have a performance. You don't have a connection. You have an entertainment unit that is wringing itself out like, like an old t-shirt trying to be dried off at a beach just to try and get a flicker, a smile, a, a half smile, a, a facial twitch from your mother. And the, this, to me, is one of the reasons why Jim Carrey very entertaining, but there's also a lot of desperation in there, which I think we've all heard about who followed his career at all. And the desperation comes from it is a survival panic to engage people. And when you don't have a connection with your mother, it's almost impossible to stand being disliked outside of the home, right? I remember when I was in theater school, there was a guy there who said something, I, I just, it struck me as a beautiful thing that he said. He said that his parents had said, go out into the world and do your thing and, and be creative and do all of this great stuff because you always know that you have a home here, you have a place here, you have a bed here, you have security with us. Pretty nice, pretty nice. I don't know if he took that out and did stuff with it, but it was a beautiful, I remember it really struck me, it's a beautiful thing. You know, like uh, there's an old Tom Hanks movie about being a stand-up comic where he says something like, I'm a comedian because I think nothing is funny. And there's real truth in that. It took me a while to figure why, why that stuck in my brain, like a splinter. But um, the reason is because you become often, again, there are exceptions, but often people become comedians because they've had to entertain 
a depressed family member for years, and that's how they've got that muscle. And all those those muscles. So yeah, it's a desperate situation to have to entertain people in order to gain any kind of positive reaction from them. And this is another reason why comedians so often uh, self-medicate and so because there's a lot of pain, a lot of pain down, down there. So Jim Carrey says, my mom was addicted to pain medication. And he's also said in the Bill Maher interview, she never had to pay for a prescription in her life. Do you see how split this understanding is, this self-knowledge, this, these connections? You understand, Jim, it would have been better if your mother had had to pay for prescriptions because then she wouldn't have had access to the pain medication, at least not as easy. And this healthcare system that you say is so fantastic, unless your mom was out there dealing with the kids in the schoolyard, this healthcare system that you say is fantastic and is so wonderful poured pain medication drugs down your mother's throat. Do you understand? It's not even, I, I personally, this is just, of course, my theorizing. I don't actually believe that it's Jim Carrey's opinion. I think it's his mother's opinion because the healthcare system appears to be Jim Carrey's mother's dealer. And when you're a drug addict, your dealer is wonderful. And so what happens, what happens in Jim Carrey's household when he's a kid if the government system gets privatized, right? If it becomes free. I mean, sorry, <laughs> free is always confusing with this socialist crap, right? Not free from consequences, not free from client or customer or patient control, but it becomes a free market environment. Well, she's not going to be able to get a hold of these uh, drugs that she's addicted to. And what happens then? So he says, my mom was addicted to pain medication. She was very sick in a lot of ways. She was lovely too, but she was a child of alcoholics and she had issues. He added, and that's not intentional abandonment. She was always there for me. She was always there in the house. But if you're high on painkillers, that's abandonment. So she's there, but not there, which is tortuous. And, you know, Jim Carrey, in many ways, he has like a big heart. He's, he's intelligent. He's, he's very talented, as I said. And that's kind of torture, to have someone there, but not there. Carrey said that his mom did her best, but in the end, he felt alone. He said... I guess we're all abandoned to a certain extent, all of us, in some way or another, by something or someone, and that forms in us our belief about ourselves. Now, this is called normalizing, right? Which is to say, I had a personally negative experience, and if you have a personally negative experience that's outside the norm, then the person who inflicted that negative experience on you is to blame, right? Assuming they're an adult and so on, right? So if your mother is addicted to painkillers and she is emotionally unavailable and, and she abandons you quite in the house, right? you've got this ghost moving around the house, long day's journey into night style. If you want to read about the effects of morphing addiction on creativity, go Eugene O'Neill's play, see it, uh, or Martha Henry one is fantastic, but see it or, or read it. Also, it's an incredible uh, play. Uh, it was a play, his mother was addicted to, to morphine and the play was so, and his father was a famous actor. Eugene O'Neill. And, and the play was so agonizing for him to write that he wrote it and his wife said he'd came out of his study writing it and his it was weeping and, and just, you know, red eyes and unable to speak after disgorging this play, the truth, about his, his youth. And 
even though the play is, is a masterpiece of analytical dysfunction of a family. Eugene O'Neill refused to have the play performed until at least 10 years after his death, almost like the play would reach into his grave and bring him out as a howling baby to yawp his humiliated dysfunction across the rooftops of the world. I have to be 10 years dead before this history can be resurrected on a stage, before my mother can come back to life. I have to be at least 10 years dead. I have to be rotted away before my mother returns to life through my imagination. That's a terrifying, terrifying story. So if the mother, who was home and therefore responsible for the children, is popping pain pills instead of being a mother, that creates a lot of pain, obviously, right? And then you get angry at your mother, right? Unless, now the way you, you avoid being angry at your mother is you say, well, it happens to everyone. And then your mother is not an individual who acted in a negative way within your environment. It's sort of like, you know, if you get mad at getting old, right? Well, as the old saying goes, aging sucks, but it, it certainly beats the alternative. And of course, we only get old. We only get to be born because everyone gets old, because human beings need replacement. That's a Da Vinci thing, I think, Leonardo from way back. But no, Galileo? Can't remember. Anyway. If you get mad at getting old, that's immature, right? And if you call up your mom and you say, Mom, I'm really mad that you're making me get old, that would be the statement of a crazy person because everyone gets old or they die. And so if you take your personal horror and you universalize it, then your mom is not to blame any more than she would be to blame for you getting old, right? So when he says, and I quote, I guess we're all abandoned to a certain extent, all of us in some way or another by something or someone, and that forms in us our belief about ourselves. Then he's saying that his feelings of abandonment are not specific to his mother, but specific to the human condition, right? Like whenever you hear this phrase, the human condition, or it's humans are X or Y, or we all have these existential crises. It's, no, people are just trying to forgive their parents. They're trying to absolve, in general, it could be someone other than parents, but... They're trying to absolve other people from specific measurable actions and moral responsibility by saying it's a human condition, like mortality, like aging. It's just what happens. And uh, no, it's not just what happens, Jim. Your mother, tragically, self-medicated rather than deal with her issues, that had crippling and terrible effects on you as a child, which I massively sympathize with. But here's the reality of... Jim Carrey and, and his life, right? And, and I say this with sympathy, kind of, and kind of not, because this is not everyone. He's making very specific choices. And he probably is, as a performer, so desperate for an audience that he can't say anything controversial that might cause that audience to abandon him. You know, when, when you have a comedian, and, and there were some real exceptions to this, to be honest, I mean, George Carlin in particular, but when you have a comedian up there, he seems to be in control of the audience, but it's not really that simple. I mean, I've done a lot of public speaking. You should check out my speech in Australia. It's great. But um, it's a dance. It's a dance. Sometimes you're in control and sometimes the audience is in control. Because if the audience gets upset, gets angry, gets offended, especially as a comedian, uh, you're kind of done. So it's a real, there's only a certain amount of truth that you can tell to an audience if you're in, I, I like the philosophy business a lot more than the comedy business because in the comedy business, you're much more limited in the truths that you can tell. Because the com comedian promises to entertain and to make you laugh. And there are some people, again, some people who can 
tell the truth and make people laugh like George Carlin to some degree, but it's uh, it's rare. And that's not Jim Carrey. I mean, he's a very politically correct comedian. So his own personal life, you would think that if he knows enough about how society as a whole should be organized, that we should use the coercive power of the state to redistribute resources among people, that the state has the power, or the people in the government have the power to wield that awesome political might and not be corrupted. You know, we always have this, oh, power corrupts, power corrupts. And then we say, yeah, but government should shovel trillions of dollars around in the economy. That's not going to corrupt government or people or anyone or anything at all. Of course it is, right? So we start, right? So the, the, the tagline for this show, the logic of personal and political liberty. And personal liberty, personal integrity comes before society. You must have a reasonably decent personal life before you can go around lecturing everyone on how Force and politics and power and society should be organized as a whole. And I'm curious. I'm always curious when it comes to people's personal lives and what they do and how they function and so on. So you've probably heard this story. So Jim Carrey began dating an Irish makeup artist. Her name was White. Uh, She was 30 in the summer of 2012, they met on, on a movie set. And then, in, in 2015, this uh, makeup artist was found dead on September 28, 2015. And she, the, the coroner's office ruled that she took her own life by overdosing on prescription drugs. You see the pattern here? You see the pattern here? If you say, like your mother was a drug addict, and emotionally unavailable, and you say, well, that's everyone, that's just life, that's, that's the way everyone is, you're not going to be able to date someone who's not got addictive problems. Because that's everyone, right? That's everyone. And when you forgive, quote, when you forgive people who've harmed you in the past <clears throat> by universalizing their behavior, you become trapped in that behavior. Right? So <clears throat> I say, everyone is susceptible to gravity. Nobody is immune from gravity. So would I then start looking for someone to date who was immune to gravity? Well, no, because everyone is subject to gravity. And so there's no possibility of me finding anyone who is immune to gravity, right? So if everyone abandons, if everyone has dysfunctional issues, if everyone has addictive, well, then you can't find, you won't even bother looking for people. In fact, you'll shy away. You'll shy away from people who are really functional because they challenge the whole narrative that's there to protect your childhood and to protect the people who did you wrong in your childhood. It's actually the mother who steers unconsciously, the mother who steers the son towards dysfunctional women. Because if the son is involved with dysfunctional women, the dysfunctional women will not be able to call out the mom. And she retains her control over the son. You understand all of this, right? I'm sure it's not that complicated. So, yeah, this woman, the uh, Irish makeup artist, she took her own life. And what did she take? She took Ambien, uh, Propanolol, and Percocet, Oxycodone, and, and uh, Acetaminophen. So that's pretty bad. Now, Jim Carrey, last year, claimed that this woman had blackmailed him over claims that he had given her herpes. That also reminds me of Robin Williams, I think. And he paid her some undisclosed sum in 2013. Now, I don't want to get into all of the details because the lawsuit has been dismissed, but... He was sued by a bunch of people around this 
woman for a wrongful death. And I won't get into all of the details and all of that. Um, but the lawsuit was dismissed over allegations of uh, fraud. But come on. But come on. I mean, this is where Jim Carrey is in his life, in his mid, well, I guess early to mid 50s, right? That's just astonishing. And it's not really astonishing that he should be so superbly confident on how something as complex as healthcare should be organized in society after his on-again, off-again girlfriend killed herself. Overdosing on prescription medication, which was the issue in his childhood regarding his mother. So these are the kind of patterns that emerge and occur in the absence of self-knowledge. So the way that responsible, and you know, Jim Carrey, it's the problem with being talented and generating a lot of money, is when you generate a lot of money, you generate a lot of yes men. Right? When you generate a lot of money, you generate a lot of people who don't want to confront you, who, like, especially if you're, if it's your dysfunction that's producing all the money, people don't want to interfere with that dysfunction because they're afraid of killing the goose that lays the eternal golden eggs, right? So do people sit down there and try and help Jim Carrey? Well, no, I don't think so. Because if they help Jim Carrey, it's going to destabilize him. Maybe it'll take him a while to make movies. Maybe he'll give up wanting to please an audience. Maybe he won't be as good uh, on camera and so on. Who knows, right? But, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it until the guy makes you know, hundreds of millions of $150 million that he's worth or something like that, and his movies have made probably well north of a billion or more. Do you want to interfere with that? Well, no. Well, no. You don't want to fix the cow that produces the most milk. So there probably aren't a lot of people in Jim Carrey's life who are really willing to confront him and say what needs to be said. Forget socialism. This is not your purview. Forget talking about the glories of the healthcare system that to some degree, I assume, helped ensnare your mother in a life of addiction and half destroyed your childhood. Focus on the pain and the anger that you have as a child towards having to be a performing animal rather than a full, fully realized human being. To be loved for entertaining people rather than just existing and being who you are. To ending up in a straitjacket of human doing rather than human being, right? There's a lot of pain in there. There's a lot of anger in there. Now, if you get that anger, the anger is there to protect you from repetition of addiction. Because he said both about his mother and the Irish woman who killed her herself, they're lovely. They're too good for this. Like, come on. Come on. It's a dysfunctional mess. You differentiate it with anger. You protect yourself with anger. Anger is a very healthy emotion. It's the immune system of future moral salvation. You get angry against people who've made bad decisions and it helps keep people who will make those same bad decisions in the future out of your life, which you need. Healing is protection. Closure is protection. You have dysfunction in your life as long as you are in conditions that continue to provoke that dysfunction. When you get to a place of security and safety of good people around you, you're doing the right thing, you're safe, you're secure, then and only then are you free of the past.